Ennis Britton, this is Jeremy. How can I help you? Hey, Jeremy. Can we talk about a student discipline issue? Oh, yeah. That's always a hot topic. What's going on? So just this morning, I learned that we have a kid on an IEP at our elementary school who's been pretty disruptive and disrespectful in class. It's all really verbal. Mm -hmm. And to help the teacher out, the principal has been giving the student work time in her office on particularly bad days. Okay. The reality is, is if we sat down and discussed it, the behavior is probably a manifestation of the student's disability. And uh I know. And so I asked about, you know, the decisions that the principal was making. And it seems to be that there's a concern that they might need the 10 days in the future if the student was to become physical. So rather than removing the child from school, they're just putting him in her office to work. Got it. Okay. There may be a few things we want to tighten up and uh, let's, let's explore some other ways to address this behavior. Welcome to season two of On the Call, Ennis Britton's special education law podcast. I'm Erin Wessendorf-Fortman. And I am Jeremy Neff. And we are ready to dig into this call. So nobody likes to be the special ed director who finds out sometimes well after the fact that, oh, one of my kids has been sitting in the principal's office on and off. We're not entirely sure how frequently and how many total times, but, you know, something's happened. And by the time it comes to that director's attention, it's often because the parent's gotten frustrated or maybe the team's starting to try and push for a change of placement, which might be entirely appropriate. But the parents think, well, dang, my kid hasn't even had a shot here. There have been all these removals. Or it's because the, you know, the people who know the most about the building, the front desk secretaries, are tired of babysitting because right. now they're responsible for this child and they're not getting their tasks done. You yeah, know? not in the job description. It's not, <laughs> but they do know everything in those buildings. They are the keeper of all the intelligence. Oh, yes. So uh, we do have some law to work with on this one, although I will say this is one where the black letter law only gets us so far. So we are going to talk quite a bit about some um, I don't want to call it informal guidance, but we'll just call it guidance. Just regular old guidance regular from old the guidance. USDOE, yes. Yeah. All right. So so what's what's the law have to say about this? We have plenty of podcast episodes about manifestation determination reviews and discipline and all of that. We will continue to have plenty. It's a pretty frequent area of questions. Um, but generally speaking – we, we know that once we get to either more than 10 consecutive days of removal or a pattern of removals that exceeds 10 days of removal, we've got a lot of procedural safeguards, a lot of protections that are going to jump into place. Right. But it's also then what counts as that removal? Because we will get the phone calls to say, or at least, I mean, I've been in presentations and had principals and assistant principals look at me and say, well, what did you expect me to do? I called mom because mom or grandma or aunt always wants the update. And I was giving her the update. And she said, "Ugh, fine, I'm just going to come get the kid. I didn't ask her to. I never said, please come get this kid. So I didn't remove the kid. Mom did. Well, but my response on the other side has often been, is maybe it's been yours, but how did mom know what was happening except for that you called? Right. right. Right? And so you did call, even if it was, you know, what does that look like? The kid has been removed. Is it an emergency removal or is it, you know, mom had to take the kid to the dentist appointment? It's less the latter and probably more the former because there's no other reason that the kid is being taken from school except for mom was called by the administrator, right? And then the student is missing 
their academics. They're missing that gen ed. They're missing any um, interventions. They're missing the rest of that school day. So we could probably view that as a removal, right? I mean, yeah. wouldn't statute agree? Well, I mean, maybe. I don't know because we don't really have a great definition of what a change of placement is uh, when you look in the regulations themselves. So when you're in the discipline section of the regulations, uh, it doesn't really say much at all. You know, it talks about change of placement. It uses the phrase quite a bit, but it doesn't actually give you a definition. When uh, you look at the consent section of the regulations, parental consent, at least in states that require parental consent for a change of placement, it speaks a little bit about it there. And it says basically, well, it's a change from one option on the continuum of alternative educational placements to another. But what, again, that's not giving us a great definition. So you actually have to go to the definition of least restrictive environment which refers then to this continuum, meaning alternative placements such as full inclusion, um, being in some sort of unit, being instructed at home, maybe in some sort of institution. It makes it sound like it's a fairly significant change in both services and peer group. But when we talk, well, and there you go, that's how we would tend to talk about it, right? When we are really looking at placement as being defined to be two things, set of services and a peer group. And when we're shifting or adjusting on those aspects, that's when we tend to say, hey, you might have been flagged as now you have removal, right? Which could then trigger your other statutory obligations. And and we're consistent on this, right? Mm Because placement is not a street address. It's not a classroom number either. It really is these other things that that comprise the placement, services, peer group. And so the U.S. Department of Education came out. Now, granted, it was July of 22, so we're about a year out from that. But what they did is they really put out a Q&A on addressing the needs of children with disabilities and IDEA's discipline provisions. And so in the process, they have a lot of these you know, questions that they're answering. That's why they call it a Q&A, which ha ha ha. But then they label all of their questions. And I think it honestly, it's a little silly to me, but it makes me laugh. So then you can say, well, the, the answer to question D45 is blah, 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 bingo. And so and you didn't like my bingo reference there. <laughs> Nothing. Did you ever play Sorry. bingo? Oh, yeah. No? Yeah. Fireman's okay. Festival. It was the best. Fireman's Festival. Yeah. Well, that's what happens in small towns. And, right. and yeah, di- a dime aboard. It was great. A dime aboard? Oh, yeah. I can't even. (laughs) And so at least with regard to this Q&A, right, out of the feds, they said that actions that result in denials of access to and or significant changes in an education program can be considered as part of the 10 days and could constitute an improper change in placement. So we're really going back to at least how you and I have been consistently defining it, and placement is your set of services in your peer group. Right. And I think that that... is highlighted by this. And they give us examples of what that could look like in, in you know practical terms. It can mean the school administrator informing a parent, hey, your kid can't stay here the whole day. This, this just isn't quite working out. Um, it, it could be uh, a teacher who is not allowing um, a, a child to participate in the full day, even if it's not sending the child home. Um, they don't uh, the Department of Ed doesn't get into, well, what about that situation where you just call the parent and the parent says, I'll come pick them up. But certainly you can see how that ties into these examples of what a removal might be. But what I think the the department also did is they said, listen, we can't define every situation. It's sort of a know it when you see it, right? It's that it is considered a disciplinary removal unless 
three factors are met. And so that's the attorneys love or anyone in the law loves a three-part test. I don't understand it. It's magical. And maybe it's because we don't do math. And so we can only count (laughs) to three. I'm not sure. Um, But the factors are, you know, is the child afforded an opportunity to continue to participate in gen ed? So if they're still allowed to participate in gen ed and you can check yes to that and i think it's move on to question two right the child continues to receive services outlined in their iep so great so if we are still providing access to gen ed curriculum they're still providing services in their iep we're not disciplinary removal yet right we're okay and then there's also this third it's a little softer a little fluffier right they continue to participate with non-disabled children to the extent they would have in their current placement So if we can answer yes to all of those things, then it's not a disciplinary removal, right? We don't have to worry about the 10-day issues. And we've been been here for a while. Uh, This looks – if it sounds familiar, you might be the kind of nerd that reads the federal comments on regulations. And way back in 2006, similar questions were asked, and the feds gave those same three factors. So we've been giving this kind of advice for a while, and I think schools – generally are there where they understand, again, that placement is not about physical location, but it's about these factors that go more specifically to what does that education look like, regardless of where it occurs. OSEP, with these questions then, the the Fed said, well, let's let's talk more about this. Uh, It can be tricky, and we're going to have a case later that explores this. It can be tricky to determine then if these are informal steps are taken. How do we know when we've hit that day 11? Not so easy to find out. OSEP uh, kind of put in a, a, a backstop on this and said, well, hey, look, in addition to just worrying about procedural requirements, because a you know, procedural violation on its own, no big deal. We care about more substantive things. Did the child receive FAPE? And OSEP said, hey, by the way, there's already an existing requirement that an IEP team needs to reconvene more often than the annual review if there is some good reason to do that. And some of them are obvious. It's like progress you know, monitoring. You're looking at it. The kid's not making progress you would expect, either greatly exceeding the, the targets or maybe falling well short. The team should reconvene. But there's a catch-all that just says other matters. Nothing says behavior, at least not at the federal level of the regulations. Nothing says you reconvene because of behavior. But it does say other matters. And the feds in this guidance say, look, that's something that might cause a team to reconvene because frequent use of informal removals, whether it's um, sitting out in the hallway, sitting in the principal's office, the parent coming to pick the child up, informal use of that, if it happens frequently enough, could become a problem. It could deny faith. So regularly requiring a kid to miss school, right, or miss instructional time, leave early, could be considered at least a triggering point for us to say, hey, we need to reconvene an IEP team to talk about services and supports. What else do we need to do for a kiddo, right? I mean, I think, at least from my perspective on this, those IEPs, when they come to you, right? Again, no one ever calls sunshine, puppy dogs, and rainbows for us. We always call when the issue has already popped up. And they go, well, when should we have known? Well, I mean, there's a lot of woulda, coulda, shouldas there. But if a kid's regularly missing, right, And then we have an IEP that doesn't have a behavior goal. We don't have a BIP. We have an ETR that may walk a line of a potential behavior concern, right, in some of the evaluation instruments, but nothing major. But we're missing a BIP. We're missing a behavior goal. I think once we have those aspects and they're not there, 
and we're constantly engaging and removing a student, I think we have a miss with regard to a school district and needing to convene that team, whether it is for an FBA, whether it is for, oh, you're right, we need to have a behavior goal and building in those aspects. And, and the feds do give us a few factors here that they specifically say we should look at. And you've hit on several of them, You know, some others that they say should be considered uh, include the circumstances that led to the removal, um, what what the uh, services that are being provided to the child, whether that's being provided in accordance with their IEP or if there have been some failures there, whether the behavior could be addressed through some minor changes in the IEP. If that's the case, they want to see us doing that instead of using these informal removals, offer examples of adjusting you know, transition times uh, and, and practicing certain skills. Uh, they also say uh, whether there should be a consideration of, of reconvening the IEP team to incorporate some of these changes into the IEP itself. So they expect us to do more than just rely on these informal removals. And and they do say a bit more about this. And first of all, acknowledging it's not defined in the regs, right? There's nowhere we can look in the regulations to see informal removals. So the definition right now is in this Q&A from last summer, 2022. And they say, well, this means it's action taken by school personnel in response to behavior that exclude the child for part or all of any day, including for an indefinite period of time. Okay, that that seems obvious. Um, And that they're considered informal because we're not categorizing them as either a change of placement or a suspension, expulsion, that sort of thing. But I did think what was interesting, and I know it was an answer to um, a different question, right? But And it was, if you will, question C7. So make a bingo joke, even though that there's no C in bingo, and that would have been a B7 if you know your columns and your numbers correctly. But I apparently I play, we play bingo at Thanksgiving in my in-laws' family. It's a very strange and adventure. And they charge you more than a dime a board? I mean, because I know you're shocked by that price. It's a very <laughs> range event at Thanksgiving. But regardless. Shout out to uh, Aaron's in-laws if they're listening oh to this God, podcast. They do, they're going to die. <laughs> it's fine. Um, but for this question, I liked what OCR said, and I think it, it was talking about in-school suspensions, but I think it can go for both the removals and in-school suspensions. That really, what we need to look at it is on the other side of it is the repeated use of, of removing a child, right, to in-school suspension and or just informal removals can look like we are not implementing the IEP correctly or the IEP doesn't appropriately address behavior needs, mm-hmm. right? And so it it really goes back to FAPE at the end of the day. And we can't sort of hide behind the curtain of, oh, it's just informal. Oh, it's just in school. Oh, we've done enough of them. You have to look at it eventually and say, whoa, how many of them have there been? And are we denying FAPE? Right. And I think when looking at that, that tends to give you your answer. Right. If you want to go to your Michigan case, I, I think say, the yeah. number of incidents in that respect. And now, granted, Monday morning quarterback, I, I kind of go, wow, how did you not see it sooner? Yeah. This, so this is a case out of 2015, and it was a formal complaint to the Department of Education in Michigan. And it involved a male student. They don't give us a lot of other details, not even disability category, but we do know some things. There was an IEP that referenced the, the fact this child had been suspended in the prior year. There were attendance. Suspensions. Suspensions, yes, multiples. And uh, attendance records indicated far more removals than were referenced in the IEP. Uh, in fact, 184 periods marked as unexcused absence. Now, Reading between the lines, and we have to do a lot of that on this particular finding, 
my guess is some of that was probably just straight up truancy. Some of it, might, you know, kids. Yeah, but skipping we're talking class. periods, maybe class periods, not necessarily probably. days, because that would be almost a year. The whole year, yeah, yeah. It, but the school never pursued truancy charges, though, uh, which seemed to be an important fact. I, I, it seemed almost as though the Department of Ed read into that that the school maybe acknowledged that it was responsible for some of those removals, making a lot of assumptions here. Well, but I do think if you're looking at no matter what state you're in, if you're looking at a removal of a student and it is due to the parent constantly removing a child, most schools don't jump at the chance, but they understand their obligations under truancy. Whereas if it's not parent-initiated, we might skirt those rules a little bit. Yeah, they're helping us out, taking the kid home. Mm -hmm. We're helping them out, not referring it to court. Uh, but and then, this served to bite the Flint, Michigan district in the butt. It did. And the principal and the secretary who might have filled in some of these details were no longer employed by the district, too. So that also factors into the lack of some of these details, which really is kind of part of the point and part of why we selected this case, because there were a whole bunch of allegations that were made in this complaint. Among them, uh, the failure to provide timely and meaningful progress reports. That was found to be true. There wasn't good evidence of progress reporting. We probably wasn't there very much to get the data on. It could be. It doesn't mean we don't give progress reports. Could be. But it does mean that maybe that was part of the reasoning why they didn't. Well, and regardless, then they didn't reconvene the team to talk about this possible lack of progress that had occurred and then turning it over to the discipline. But I do think this really ties in all closely together with that progress monitoring. There were formal removals. So it's not like this was all informal. There was, uh, there was, there were. Your English is as good as mine some days, which is not very good. (laughs) There were 16 days of suspension on the record, plus this indefinite number of informal removals where the family was basically told to come pick up the kid. So you put that all together and the Department of Ed, instead of really you know, beating their head into the wall trying to figure out, well, precisely how many other removals should have counted, these informal ones, instead they just said, well, hey, look, you don't have progress monitoring to show this child did well. Given all these absences, there's good reason to think he didn't do well. And so we're just going to say, forget about discipline process, even though there's a problem there. And that was one of the findings. We're just going to say this child was denied FAPE and you need Ooh, to. Yeah. That's a much bigger issue than a disciplinary, you know, a failure to conduct an MDR, on, right, on or before day 10, right? A denial of FAPE is much more substantive for that child's entire year than just, you know, failing to do an MDR pro- process. And, and I think the the... July of 2022 federal guidance points us in the direction of pay attention to FAPE. Before that, honestly, my my instinct would have been to turn to just the disciplinary process, that that's what I want to make sure we comply with. The feds told us in this, this case, which predates that guidance, tells us don't take your eye off the ball. Idea is about FAPE. And, and by the way, similar concepts could apply to 504 as well, of course. So so what do we do then to not end up in the position the Flint, Michigan district was? I mean, the first practical tip always every time is your PD, right? You're, you're training for your staff. But I think that also means your principals and your assistant principals. And I realize that oftentimes you know, they get it. Like, Listen, I got my admin license. I did my degrees. I understand the things. Sometimes the kid just needs to go home. And I fully understand that. And there is no bright line rule, but there should be a know it when you see it rule. 
right? Or at least a flag for review in a district that, listen, we've called to have this kid to be sent home six times this quarter, right? We might need, or 10 times, or whatever you have it as a district, we might need to have something flagged, at least in our review, quarterly, monthly, whatever, to say that this is something we need to pay attention to, to help negate a liability for a denial of FAPE. Right. And I think on the other side of that coin, not just telling people when they shouldn't do certain removals, but also telling people how we do appropriate removals. And that's especially true for the classroom teachers who might feel trapped. And if they, if, if you have a teacher and they are out there that is under the impression that, oh, if a kid has ADHD, they can't be disciplined. If a kid is in the category of uh, ED, they can't be disciplined. If that's how they feel, there's still a breaking point where they'll get to that spot of, well, I don't care. This kid just needs to be removed. And the trouble is sometimes on paper, it looks like we've really short-circuited some processes and jumped to a really serious discipline without doing those other things that we should have, without looking at what are some of the ways we could change the way we serve this child, without working the parent toward maybe there needs to be some sort of change of placement. So educating folks about how to do removals or changes of placement the right way is every bit as important as telling them what not to do. And I also think watching how we're using removals and is our target student or at least recipient student, maybe not target, that's a bad word. Anyhow, is our recipient student mainly a student with a disability? And because do we emergency remove that many other typical students? My strong guess is no. And so if we really look at a disparity and it is focusing on students with disabilities, I think we as a district need to find a different way to go about those removals and those conversations, looking at the supports that are put in place, involving additional professionals within that process, right? Absolutely. And then to acknowledge, though, the situations where there are going to be removals, we need to have processes in place to make sure that we're in a defensible position. Because the, the Flint District, in that complaint, part of the reason that they lost was they just they didn't have the receipts, right? There are a whole lot of question marks. And if you're that district, it's always going to go against you, right? The, the assumptions will go against your interests. So a couple of processes that are really important are going to include uh, having a way that we're documenting those informal removals so we don't need to worry that you know when the principal and the secretary are both gone that we're in charge at the time, that we don't have any way to show what had happened. So have a process to document those. And that's true even if we think they're being done entirely appropriately. We still want to have a way to document what those removals are. And then having a process for determining at what point we reach that pattern of removals that constitutes a change of placement. So we know somewhere north of 10 days, even if they're not all in a row, somewhere up there, there's a pattern of removals we need to pay attention and implement procedural safeguards. So I I guess just to recap a few of these practical tips, if you find yourself in the position like this, our caller did, of getting the after the fact, oh crap, what do we do? This kid's been out of there uh, so long. Unfortunately, there's no time machine. Um, but we need to uh, think about processes to prevent that from happening to begin with or to ensure that the records are there because, again, we have processes for documenting the use of these removals that we can rely on to establish that we were fully in compliance with the law. Thank you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share and give us a review on your favorite podcast platform and follow or subscribe to On The Call. 
This helps other special education leaders find the podcast. If you have a topic you would like to suggest, a question about today's episode, or anything else you'd like to let us know, please email us at podcast at ennisbritton.com. A quick note, this podcast is intended to be used for general information only and is not legal advice. If you have a specific question, please consult an attorney. Whether by phone or this podcast, we're looking forward to being on the call with you again soon.